before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land I'm recording the podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to episode 13 of the ISO Late Show. We have done it. We're back in ISO. Knew it was going to happen. Uh, it was only inevitable that people would uh, get too lax. The restrictions were probably let off too much too fast. And uh, boom, here we are. So... I hope that the news of that didn't uh, mess you up too much and that you're kind of accustomed to doing the isolation thing. Uh, For the rest of Australia, learn from Victoria. For the rest of the world, um, learn from Victoria as well. Uh, We blew it. So in saying that, I'm not going to change the name of the show for a while yet. I might keep um, one foot firmly planted in a pool of COVID-19 platelets. And um, this episode is uh, all too timely. Uh, we spoke. To, I spoke to Nick Clark, who's a good friend of mine and someone that I looked up to until I got to meet him and then uh, looked up to him even more once I did. Um, He's a writer. He is someone who's spoken to some of the biggest names in music. He's a great interviewer. He's a great reviewer. He has a real way with words when it comes to talking about music. And that's the thing that I got hooked on with some of Nick's work. Uh, He used to run a great podcast for Poncho um, as well as... um, being a host on Poncho TV and having his own shows that he'd make uh, with Banalarama, uh, ABABCD, um, go and Google some. I might put some links in the in the uh, show notes. Could have spoken to Clarko for two hours, I reckon. We only covered a small sample of the things that are interesting about Clarko. I really wanted to quiz him on his obsession with hygiene and I also wanted to hear him recite some of his writing, uh, a piece that he wrote uh, three years ago about um, obsessive hygiene in the workspace, which is very, very funny. Um, And we've included it in the podcast as a little story breakaway section. and also, if you listen right through to the end of this, I included and I got him to read another one of his pieces about Japan as well. So it's a bit of a storytelling episode. Clarko tells me some great stories about meeting the Pixies and um, also how marathon running has changed uh, his life and uh, his um, 
awareness that uh, talking about or writing about um, running is a very self-indulgent uh, venture. Uh, that aside, uh, the interview itself was pretty self-indulgent for me because I really like the way Nick operates and wanted to get to the bottom of what stirs that um, to happen. So I hope that um, some of the things I found out give you some insight into um, hygiene, running and the pixies. Thanks for joining me, Nick. This is the first time we've really ever chatted like this. Yeah, it is. I think you're correct. It would have been in years past probably with roles reversed. Yeah, true. And it happened. I think a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask you, um, I probably asked you over the last few years just intermittently anyway, quite interview-like questions because I kind of wanted to know the ins and outs of projects you'd done or... Uh, So you've furtively been doing this without my knowledge? I think so. And then as I was doing the research into the last couple of years of stuff you'd done, I was like, oh, I've actually kind of quizzed Clarko on a lot of that stuff because I'm, I was a big fan of a lot of the earlier stuff you were doing. Um, so this conversation is probably going to repeat some questions I've asked you in real life mm-hmm. um, for the sake of the audience. Great. It's Yeah, I was thinking about like the sake of the audience on my way here because like the sort of silent third party in the room is something that I've become like – less familiar with over the last few years and like I got so used to that whole like you know you change the manner of your conversation to be more inclusive or like go over old ground that you've discussed off air or whatever and then uh, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm out of the swing of it. Well I don't know and the other thing with this is it's we're in uncharted territories with who is that who is that third party in the room for this podcast because yeah. I kind of thought I knew who was listening and, and it's changed dramatically. In, in what way? Uh, I think after the Maggie Beer interview, the type of audience that were listening to it kind of changed dramatically. And yeah. the people that started following me or following the podcast on social media seemed to be a very different demographic to those that had been listening prior. Right. So it's a pretty wide mix of uh, crew. Yeah. But it, I don't think it really changes the, the content. Well, like, everything I've heard, you've been doing a real good job. Oh, so. thanks, mate. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, what have you been working on? Uh, one of the things that you were hesitant to come on uh, and be a guest was because you were feeling that you hadn't been uh, all that productive, all that busy with uh, um, putting stuff out or being well, culturally relevant. Yeah, I haven't been putting stuff out. I've been busy because I've been making things and like, preparing to put them out but I don't feel like I'm like culturally current at the moment I, I've always like since I was probably 19 was I've like put stuff out constantly and this has probably been the first few years ever where I haven't just been relentlessly shoving stuff out and so subsequently I just feel like I've got nothing to um, push and therefore no reason to be kind of doing anything public at all mm. and it's like um yeah it's it's a strange position to be in as well because like I guess what I was doing prior necessitated being quite um public and always pushing whatever I was making in a DIY sense because if you're not pushing it who, who else is going to and um and I think that just I think it was almost an act like I ha- I was it was a 
persona or something. Um, and now like, yeah, again, when I was driving here, I was just like, I don't, I don't know if I'm comfortable with like the persona that I had and maybe that's not really like, um, yeah, it, it always felt a bit disingenuous, just like the, yeah, that sort of um, hosty vibe or like quite often I'd play characters or interviewing character or, um, yeah, just like it was all maybe a version of myself mm. or like or someone else entirely, a character. But, um, yeah, I guess removed from that, like I'm not sure how to present myself. So I guess I'll just try and speak as you and I would ordinarily speak. Yeah. Not in a podcast setting. Sure. Would you normally, if you were playing the role of the host in the podcast, if mm. you if you were hosting a podcast like this, would you incorporate some of that character that you used for your previous kind of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like Vacant Vacations, which is a very extreme version of a kind of um, host character. Yep. Um, and and, and a, a sort of a bumbling uh, kind of... Uh, uh, slightly naive to the location that you're on at the yep. time. Um, in some some respects, um, disengaged from the people you're interviewing, and you're you're almost um, you're almost interviewing through them, like you're letting them um, speak uh, to the audience. Um, but you're you're not you, you don't. It seems as though you don't have that much uh, interest in what it is they're sort of saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, probably elements of that depending on the format, like just giving people as Andrew Denton himself would enough wrote, but like um, not to compare the vacant vacation character to Denton, but um, <laughs> the, yeah, like there was always um, some sort of a, a distancing measure that I would have. Like sometimes I, I wear glasses pretty much constantly now. But I remember I used to just like sometimes film with like spectacles on because I felt it like gave me a degree of detachment from myself and the camera or just like um, would wear some hat or something, just some sort of prop so I would feel like it wasn't me or um, I was distanced from it somehow. But, yeah, certainly like the the hosty like kind of element and introducing people and sitting there, sort of the faux cockiness I think is something that is, is probably the most the most distant part of like that now mm. and do you think that a lot of the wearing that like extra little you know prop that kind of pushed you over the edge mm. was was that a also a way of having like a security blanket amongst the general public like did you ever feel kind of a self-aware or um worried because some of the some of the um things you would have done in in those that era of shows was probably like difficult to do um, I'm thinking like being at Sexpo and make having really uncomfortable conversations with some of the people you were talking to. Mm. Did it give you like a safety net in those situations or do you, when you're on the set as it were, is that not even in your mind? You just, you're just bravely smashing through it for the, for the, for the product. Well, I guess, yeah, I thought, it, I thought of it as a virtuous thing where it's like, I've always been very passionate about like the concept and then if I can see the value in like <clears throat> should have leaned off there, really out of swing with no, it's microphones. Cool. Um if you're yeah, if, if if you can see the value in 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 what you're doing and your role in it, then it's like I think you can talk yourself into anything like that. And like when I would have had all sorts of reservations about 
you know, some sort of environment like that, like Sexpo or whatever, but like walking around like a moron and asking people like absurd questions. But like um, I think if I, yeah, like put on a hat and go, well, this is my character and the overall show is going to be awesome and I could see the point in it, I'd, I'd yeah, kind of just do any character, you know, like um, it's it's all just about the overall yeah, concept and seeing it through to fruition. In fact, I like I don't think I ever was comfortable fully on camera. It was just because I didn't trust anyone else to execute the concept properly. Yep. And I always talked about that with the people I was collaborating with. I was like, I just I prefer someone else did this, but I just would spend so much time telling them how to do it that it's just easier to do it myself. Um, but that said, you know, when you're especially when you're in your twenties and stuff, it's probably like as there probably was for me, some enjoyment for like some recognition or whatever, like mm. I guess there's, um, yeah, everyone has like a bit of an ego and if if people are like, oh, hey, man, love your show or whatever, you're like, oh, sweet, like that's kind of nice. It's not why you do it but it's like it's good to hear. But then I think now I would just hate it. Like I just wouldn't want anyone to see me. I think I got in probably at a good time then when I first came up to you one day at Laneway, I'd watched all of – I, and I wrote a list of all the ones that all the stuff that kind of got me into your work. Um, you you did a podcast with Poncho uh, with Joe from King Giz. You were doing some stuff for Poncho TV. Uh, you did a mini series of Vacant Vacations and Banalarama stuff uh, with Zach Bradkey. Uh, ABABCD, which was a music live music show, um, and and of the likes that probably hadn't ever really been done up until that point and um, maybe still hasn't ever, even nothing's really pulled off anything like that in the same way. Um, so I was obsessed with a lot of the stuff that you'd put out in that big chunk and I came up to you as one of those people and was just like, hey, man, I'm a massive fan of what you do. Um, are you saying that if I did that in 2020, you, the way you think about that would change? A little bit. I would you would you be and concerned? then also I, think I, rem- I recall you coming up and I was very appreciative. Like it was it was awesome to hear when people um, liked what you know liked what I was doing. But um, yeah, well, I guess yeah, I'd find it um, odd now given the time elapsed, obviously. But like if I was still um, making <laughs> yeah. stuff, uh, yeah, I just I, I probably would be um, a little less comfortable with it. But it's it's not an issue at the moment, so it's 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 hard to say. Sweet. I can still be a fan then and, and, and be your mate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I like that. And, and like you and I have since made a bunch of things together. We've yeah. collaborated a lot. So, um, and, yeah, it's definitely mutual. Like I've, I've enjoyed not to, you know, um, sound like a tokenistic, a tokenistic handball, but I think you're aware of the fact that um, I've liked a lot of the stuff you've done. So. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate the token even if it is one. It's not a – I've issued the disclaimer, so <laughs> not, more, not much more I can do. Um, it's always super awkward in a conversation to um, – it's almost like an instant vibe kill when you um, are a big fan of someone and then you're in a conversation with them quite naturally and then at some point you allude to the fact that you know, you know more about them through their work and, and you're a big fan of their work. Um, and I'm kind of wanting to lean into this – the Pixies experience that you had yeah, where um, you want to both and, and you, I'm sure you've interviewed lots of bands that you've been a massive fan of. We've spoken about a few of them but you want to come across as um, 
approachable down to earth and and like be kind of on on base human level be um have a conversation that is free flowing and and fairly natural yeah whilst at the same time being like um you're the pixies and i yeah you, finding that you, level of respect <laughs> you changed my life uh, and 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 yeah so run me run me through your experience going to europe uh to follow the pixies around yeah um well at the time i uh was still doing poncho stuff so poncho was like a um music tv platform that had diff- various web series and as you mentioned podcasts and other stuff on it um, that I started with a couple of friends and um, once the sort of main – there was no real series going on at that time for memory and I just – I was going on to, over to France anyway to follow the Pixies around and like a few friends and I just had the idea of getting like a um, camper van, following the band around to various gigs around um, Europe and that was kind of about it. It just seemed like a fun thing to do and, yeah, I hit, the, hit their management up and I was like I really talked it up like as you've – you know, probably had some experience of doing with the podcast already. You're just like, <laughs> you're like, oh, um, you know, uh, Nick here from Poncho, Australia's, um, you know, biggest music TV platform and, um, you know, we're heading over. Oh, no, we're looking at potentially having yeah, a. Um, like you're going to spend a budget yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like if you approve this, we'll fund it. <laughs> it's just completely untrue. But um yeah, we'll we'll send a um, bunch of four um, young people over to um, young Australians over to Europe, and and they'll follow the band around. And um, anyway, uh, they ran it by management. This was over the course of like a month or two, and much to the surprise of myself and my friends, they were like into it, and um, were like, yeah, we'll put you on the door for a couple of shows, and um, and I was like, oh. Um, can we like interact with the band at all? And they were like, <laughs> yeah, well, we can probably sort that out. Like, well, you know, to, let's discuss it when you're over there. So, yeah, we went over and, um, yeah, started in France, uh, went to a couple of shows and then I think we went to like Amsterdam and maybe there was Belgium in between. I can't quite recall. But um, it ultimately ended up in us, um, yeah, meeting the Pixies. It was, yeah, backstage in, in Amsterdam at Paradiso. And um, we'd been on a real bender for the like a um, couple of nights and days prior and just I'm, I'm pretty sure I lay around in the caravan park all day just like feeling terrible. I've, I've and you'd been... seen them, you'd been watching their shows up until this point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. And so which in- obviously increases that sense of just like idolising this band and yeah. As, yeah, as you sort of alluded to, far and away my favourite band ever. And um, really, like, well, yeah, one of the reasons I got in as just like a disaffected person, you know, you sort of in your late teens, you don't like anything and you start uni and you don't know what you want to do. And I just sort of, I loved music. That was like the only thing I liked really. And I was like, oh, I know how to, you know, write and um, on camera stuff seems interesting and somehow got into music, journalism sort of stuff. And um that was largely because of the Pixies probably. Like I just I just loved them so much and I'm pretty sure the f- very first like time I got an inverted commas paid for anything was like Sanity magazine. Mm. I wrote something for them and they gave me like a voucher and I just went and bought a bun- bunch of like Pixies albums that I didn't own on CD already. Mm. Um, anyway. I remember so, that Sanity magazine. It yeah, had a Sane. Name. Sane, that's yeah, right. Awful. <laughs> Real glossy thing. Yeah. <clears throat> um, anyway, I... 
had seen them a whole bunch this tour, had seen them a whole bunch prior in, in, in the years before that, but um, definitely that sense of just, yeah, being infatuated with these people was was there and, um, I yeah, been lying around in the caravan park, I think just feeling anxious but also really hungover and dreadful all day. Anyway, we were running late to this interview somehow, which just like my friends had been filming the whole, we've ended, we, because we had, we like had to somehow make a documentary now about like four people traveling around France following the Pixies. We'd filmed like their shows um, and we'd filmed us traveling around in this camper van and whatever. And um, we turned up at the venue to interview um, Dave and Joey. Uh, And yeah, I was just like, shaking with nerves which is not how I get before interviewing people at all like I can find the right level sometimes it takes a while but I'll find like the right headspace mm. to be in and um as yeah as you were sort of talking about for the the amount of respect to have and like the right tone and whatever and I was just like I was just quivering and um the interview was not good mm. it was just like it was, I was like it was like a um, it's like I was inhabiting the body of someone who's never done an interview and I just like <laughs> could not, I could barely like string a sentence together. I was just like asking real like inane, just bumbling questions about like um, touring, like when they're touring Australia and like which is actually just like something I wanted to know because yeah. I wanted to go see them more. Yeah. And, um, and just about like the new stuff which is, you know, as everyone would know now, at that time it was like their first, they just started releasing stuff again. But as everyone would, who's followed the Pixies at all, would be well aware now. Um, any of the stuff post that sort of first batch isn't really not worth um, giving much of a listen to. Yeah, some of it is. But um, anyway, I it was definitely the worst interview I've ever done. Um, <laughs> but fortunately, as um, I had a um, majority say in the edit, most of it's not um, anywhere. But uh, yeah, the, we we put the put this little like ten minute doco together, um, which is just basically yeah us, us eating baguettes in a camper van and um, eating like pickles out of a jar in in France and um, and seeing the pixies a lot, filmed with like just like camera phones and um, yeah the pixies like posted it and I guess, oh really yeah, their management like got behind it like put on their website and stuff it was wow. like I remember seeing it was like on their website it was like NME Rolling Stone some other shit and then just like poncho, like this link to, um, yeah, this like 10 minute doco thing we'd made, um, which was great. And yeah, they loved it. And then I teed up something else a couple of years later when they came down to the, do their opera house, um, thing, which, um, vice totally fucked up. Um, but that's another story, but yeah, it, it do you, really went. It, do, you, do you think they, um, liked something about the, the fact that it was, uh, haphazard to some degree and that, that maybe the nervousness that you brought to that interview kind of showed a sort it's of charming. innocence and a truth that they kind of what what do you yeah, think maybe. what do you yeah, think yeah. they liked about it? Yeah, yeah. Um possibly. I think I also tried to like make it kind of aesthetically similar to what like I love about the Pixies, like which is just like this um kind of pastiche sort of uh, mismatch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And also just like um, a a rawness that is 
well conceived mm. and is tight and like um, feels creative in like a real visceral way. Mm. Like I tried to like, uh, although it was just like a tour doco type thing, I tried to like inject that into it mm. and um, and quite absurdist and um, yeah, this surreal aspect to it. So I think they like saw that I was trying to like pay tribute to them in a different medium. Um, but yeah, it was like, it was definitely one of those experiences where, like, I would never dream of meeting the Pixie. Like, if you told me at 18 when I was, like, first interviewing bands and shit that I'd, like, meet the Pixies and go, like, spend time with them in France. Well, which uh, – and Amsterdam, which, yeah, at the end, like, Joey Santiago chased us down after that interview down the streets in Amsterdam. It was, like, yelling out from the steps of – the Paradiso venue, like thousands of people still milling, milling around. He's like, he's like, hey, Australians. And um, comes after us and he's, he gives us these like signed pics from him and Frank and then and then we're just like chatting to him outside the venue and I'm just like basically head in hands. All my friends are like quite chill about it. They're just like talking to him and I'm just like, I just like can't believe what's happening. <laughs> and um, then Black Francis comes past and the rest of the band and, and Joey's like, He's like, hey, Black Francis. And then he like introduces us to Frank Black and then he's like, oh, why don't you come have a drink with us? And I said to my friends, like, I can't. Like, yeah. I'm not, I don't want to go. Yeah. Because like, you know, there's that whole don't meet your idols. Thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to fuck it up. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to, first of all, appear like unprofessional as well. Mm. I never liked people who like hang around bands mm. and like who, Want who are actually like their um, agenda is to befriend these people mm. and to be a hanger on rather than do their fucking job. Yep. And I was like, no, yep. I'm like, I'm here in a filming capacity now. Yep. I've done that. I don't want to fuck it up. And I also just yeah didn't want to like ruin my own like understanding of these people. Mm. Um, but it was it was an amazing experience. Mm. That's so good. Um- do you regret, is there any part of you that regrets not having a drink with Frank Black or do you sort of keep that as a, as a sort of card in your pocket that you're like, I could have but I didn't? That was probably the wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do I care about, like my professionalism, uh, professionalism in like music journalism now? Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I don't do it. So, yeah, um, yeah it, it, I probably should have just gone. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to speak to you a little bit about, and you can we can put you can push back on it as well. But um, you're to some degree um, uh, a big fan of hygiene. Yep. Um, maybe I won't push back. Yeah, um, you okay. can ask all these sorts of things. Yeah, great. Because uh, the thing is, I understand what makes a good interview from uh, the other perspective. Okay. So, which oh, is basically sweet. just openness. Yeah, right. And people answering whatever you want with a degree of insight. Yeah, which well, I'll try and do. All right. Well, I'm not saying I'm capable of it, yeah. but I understand. The broad parameters Sweet. of what makes a good interview. I won't fuck around then. With that um, last, uh, just jumping back before Pixies, when you were kind of alluding to the fact that if you could um, do things differently in the way that you used to host things or, or even just looking back on your previous work and and uh, um, you have a slightly different view on the way you did it then yep. and how you might do it now, uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on, and this is this is getting into difficult territory to probably um, you may not have the answer, but what's your thought on uh, a lot of the shows that are getting canned at the moment um, based 
on um, uh, some of the humour using minorities or um, blackface yep. or uh, I'm, to- I'm thinking like Little Britain, um, uh, Chris Lilly stuff. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. What do you reckon? Yeah, it's like a valid question to ask because like I was making stuff in the year that like um, they were making stuff. Yeah. And um, I think what you're alluding to is partly the fact that there was a sort of um, dominant style of humour then that was quite aggressive in its satire, mm. in inverted commas, of um, kind of just everyone. It was like no holding back, satirise mm. everything, everything's up for grabs, which I think was kind of like post-South Park yeah, in a, a way. And I think they probably claimed that as their, that was their get out of jail free card totally, for a while. Yeah. 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 Um, and, yeah, I, I was definitely making stuff that was not similar in tone to that. And I think, like, um, I mean, their shows were phenomenally successful and mine, you know, by the same metric was not. So it's like um, those people are, yeah, kind of like getting a lot of attention for those things now. And I think it's about, like, what you acknowledge after the fact, like, um Chris Lilly's, yeah, acknowledging nothing from what I've seen. No. Um, if, yeah, an, if anything, he's acknowledging um, he's acknowledging the outrage and he's he's simply giving more of it, posting more yeah, yeah. older clips that are still him playing Jonah. Yeah, I gather he posted something yeah, like that. Yeah. I don't really know. I don't I don't never followed his stuff very closely, but I know the little little Britain guys have like apologized yep. and yeah, kind of just said, well, um, we were ignorant and um, didn't have, like, yeah, didn't didn't have the correct sort of um, the breadth of understanding required to pull off those sort of characters, which they reckon they were just doing to kind of um, show how clever they were at playing different characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, like, yeah, as long as, um, yeah, as long as you kind of, as, as I would, like acknowledge that you were, yeah, just ignorant and didn't, didn't really have a grasp on everything to the degree that you should have, and um, not that I align any of the work you did to that. I'm, yeah, I'm more just that style. I, I'm more even. I'm not even comparing the style. You're, it's. It, it, I hadn't even thought about the fact that you were you, that there's an aggression to that humor that you were using. Well, I mean, I say aggression. It's just like there's a lack of nuance in that era, <laughs> and like um, a deficient. There's a real absence, but. Um, the something like the uh, Marty Bush, mm. which um, has also been pulled up on that. I think people can tell there's it's not mean spirited, but mm. they fucked up. Yeah. Like it's like they shouldn't have done that, and like everyone is just like, yeah, like you you can tell that their intention is not to offend people with that show. Whereas Chris Lilly, maybe the intention was kind of to Shock. ruffle feathers. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like I think I like would I definitely would change things. If I were to have, yeah, that opportunity again or, or be making stuff in that capacity now. But, yeah, it was a bit of a different, um, yeah, period in time. Mm. Uh, but that's not to say that you shouldn't acknowledge that you made a, yeah, just some strange or bad creative decisions in the past and then learn, yeah, try and inform yourself better now. Yeah. And the same goes with you know, music that I've played in the past and bands that I was in in the past and, yeah, just the the sort of stance that a band would take as a sort of you just 
you've got you it's you're, you're you're in your own sort of bubble and you're kind of not observing yourself in the context of other things maybe i'm not sure that's definitely the way it was yeah i completely agree and also you're like at least i was like you know 20 years old and you have like real black and white opinions um on like what is like really cutting kind of uh, incisive cutting sort of commentary on something and what's you know just um insipid or whatever and you're like always just wanting to do the most like interesting thing and irrespective of whether or not you fully grasp the topic and um yeah i think there's something to be said for age as well like maybe if the people who um made little britain were like in their 40s in 2000 and whatever it was nine or something when they made it um they wouldn't have made those same choices because they would have had a yeah more rounded understanding of the world so mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I think it's a, um, valid, yeah, it's a valid query. Damn, you, you handled that quite well. I was hoping to really trip you up and, um, get you unstuck, but you, you, you held your course. Oh, thanks, John. Um, much like, uh, yeah, jumping now forward to your, um, hygiene kind yep, of situation. Yep. Not that this is a current events show, but often there's, there's a fair bit going on. It's pretty timely. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a bit of stuff happening mm. out there. Um, where did your awareness or um, your kind of um, uh, penchant for cleanliness come from? I think it started when I um, started at a tea house when I was like 18. Um, yeah, scones and tea and all that. Uh, I did like as you start there and you, you'd have to do like a certificate three in hospitality or whatever whatever it is. And, um, yeah, you just learn about uh, – sanitizer and washing your hands a lot and whatever. And I think I just, as a sort of um, neurotic in different ways at, at that point, I was just like, I just got really into washing my hands heaps. And then I was just very aware of all the possibilities for germs. And I hated like, you know, it was mostly like older people would come into the tea house and dirty tissues all over the, um, all over the plates when you pick them up, which is, inexcusable under any circumstance, pandemic or not. But um, you can take it with you. But uh, I think that's when it developed and then I sort of yeah, tracked it over the course of, um, of a number of jobs that I had through my 20s and then, yeah, like wrote a piece about it um, in that little book that I put out like a couple of years ago um, about like avoiding germs uh, and then... I guess I like and there's like talk about like um, pandemics in that piece and like how to avoid um, germs if indeed you're in the middle of a pandemic, which only became relevant now. Um, so I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's um, why it's timely and why you'd be inquiring. I might get you, uh, I'm going to get you to re- record a little excerpt of that after this okay. and I might drop it in yep. just to give a bit of context okay. uh, uh, to what you're to what we're discussing. Yep. So this is the last third of a piece called A Germaphobe at Work from a book I put out in late 2018. The pandemic shunning young professional must approach a meeting scenario as follows. 1. Welcoming handshakes. Bring handheld props, laptop, clipboard, keys, keep cup, hard drive. Your hands are full, and if they're full upon arrival, they'll be full upon departure. Break the ice with some slapstick physical comedy, a jerk of each elbow paired with a silly grin. That infers you're not able to shake hands because you're carrying so many essential items. 
you're already better at your job and you're not even infected. If you've arrived without props, you should really be wearing fingerless gloves. Fingerless gloves lend the wearer a ramshackle ruggedness that belies their actual purpose. Washable palm protectors. All fingerless gloves actually cover the first joint or two of one's fingers as well, enough to create the impression of a firm grip without having to sully one's fingertips. Maintain the sanctity of the fingertips. Fingerless gloves are also almost acceptable during any season and vitally indoors. Two, coffee order. If you've successfully avoided a handshake with a prop keep cup, you'll obviously use that. Or if you hate the environment, you'll just order a takeaway. More on coffees later though. Three, choosing a seat. By now you've already detected if anyone's nasal, coughing or teeming with measles. And you've circumnavigated the room so as to sit at right angles, never directly across nor beside the offending party. Once seated, do not slide your legs under the table. You'll need that space in a second. Hunch forward in a powerful display of intent by resting your elbows on your thighs. And while holding the gaze of the first speaker, pop the cap. You are now at liberty to let sanitary scenes play out below. Four, giving and receiving documents. Depending on whether or not you brought them, you'll either need to lose the gloves and or pound the debt hole before the coffee arrives so that your pandemic palms don't infect the drink you're about to introduce to your mouth. But if you're giving or receiving documents, you'll need to keep your non-drinking hand glove on and then isolate that hand thereafter. Five, discussion and note-taking. If the offending party talks in your direction, just nod, close your mouth and hold the steady exhalation out your nostrils. Two jet streams of uninfected air blowing from your nose will gently carry the viral mass away from the atmosphere around your face. And bring your own pen. Don't borrow others and never, ever loan out your own. Six, huddling around a screen. You're exposed to the elements here, but some subtle navigation will see you through. If it's someone else's screen, let everyone else take their positions, find a safe spot, and return to your seat as swiftly as possible afterwards. If it's your screen they're huddling around, rising from your chair and moving away from the screen will only be construed positively as selfless. So either way, if you're struck by a cough to the back of the head, it's your own fault. Seven, this is the last one, departing handshakes. If you've brought enough props, you're already in the clear, and if you didn't, bring that takeaway coffee cup back into play. Never entirely finish your coffee, such that it will always occupy one hand, and if you're low on props, improvise with the other. Even a single sheet of paper can protect it. Failing the feigning of occupied hands, a fist bump can be initiated to great effect while upholding the sanctity of the fingertips and palms. Backs of hands are a much safer zone. Be careful though, because the fist bump is unusual in a professional setting, so you must flag your intention early and go in high and from a long way out. Make your fist visible and your entry steady. Executed correctly, the fist bump creates a closer rapport than a handshake ever could and makes older professionals feel chic. Misfire, though, and you'll wind up on the receiving end of an assault charge. When people kind of listen to that, uh, and, and I guess it's, it, it's, it's strangely relevant, um, but also, like, do you sit back now and, and just think, like, look, now who's laughing? Like, I've always had this kind of outlook, and so should you. There, there was a little bit of relief when this social distancing stuff started in a way and um, when people started using hand sanitizer everywhere because I, like, have been doing that. I, have like, haven't touched a door handle in a decade. Mm. And, um, yeah, I um, guess it felt like my behaviour was suddenly normalised and um, I... 
then sort of like lost that sense of relief because it actually just made me want to do more than everyone else because I was like, oh, this is a real threat now. It's not something that I'm just like avoiding because it's I don't want to get a cold. Um, was it? Was there a sense of like a validation or a just like a, almost like a was it? Were you get, did you get some sort of positive kind of reinforcement? Sorry to use that um, kind of analogy. The book that you wrote was called Positive Reinforcements for Negative People. Was there a, a sense of um, validation when when all this kicked off to some degree? Yes. <laughs> That's okay. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I felt like I'd. Yeah, I felt like I'd just been doing the right thing all along. Yeah. Um, and maybe it wouldn't have gotten to this point if everyone had just been, um, like hand sanitizing every ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, as every sane person should. But um, I think like I've been very anxious. Like my my suspicion is just like you know. I'll pass someone on the street and I'll just be operating on the assumption that they'll have, that they have it. And like, I'll be, cause I, as you are aware, I run a lot, um, run like every day basically. And I, even on runs when it's quite difficult to exhale every time you pass a person, yeah. especially if you're going around one of the more populated running spots, which are best to avoid anyway. But, um, you're, you spend a lot of time exhaling and not a great amount of time inhaling. And, um, I, I, yeah, it's not it's not the ideal way to conduct a run, but um, I live my life like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's uh, it's been an anxious um, time on the germ front. Obviously, everyone's been um, anxious for good reason, but um, I guess like my um, level of germ avoidance has reached like a um, real crescendo. Mm. at the moment like it's um yeah it's probably a bit too extreme and your um p- your postcode your previous postcode's just been locked down as yep. well yep. Um, north melbs, yeah yeah um shout outs to yep. north melbourne i love that place um how do you feel about the tower sitch yeah uh it's definitely very curious like surely they could have been a bit more selective in which towers, like I'm pretty sure some of the towers don't even have infected people in them. Um, So, yeah, it's strange that they would lock them down and not like the high rise that's directly opposite or whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, definitely feel for those people. It's it's awful. Like hopefully, yeah, hopefully they've got enough food and they're entertained and like Mm. in in stable relationships and... um, yeah, like in in a reasonable level of comfort, but I I, I don't know. Yeah. No, and I yeah I can I can assume that there's not um that there is a lot of people in there that probably don't have those things as well. That yeah, are, are yeah, extra. you would definitely assume so. Yeah, some people. Yeah. Um, interesting. The mention the mention of um towers that don't have any infected people in them, um, it, and yet being treated like everyone's got it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Lou and I, Lou and I have been away for the week. We've actually pre pre sort of um, any indication of another spike. We we were out of here and we were just down the coast. And um, on the way back through, we um, stopped stopped off uh, for dinner with uh, a cu- couple of Lou's family. And um, the place we tried to book for tea is was way out of 
a small country town, which I, I'm not going to name them because they were great and no, this isn't, I don't want to kind of paint them with a, a rough brush. Yeah, yeah. But they, um, I rang up to book and, and it was one of those situations where this place is such a small place that maybe they won't open tonight because it's Sunday. So we'll try. And I rang up and left a message. Is there a table for four we could book? And they rung, called me back and they said, um, yeah, 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 um, yeah, we're happy to book in. Uh, it's just how many of you? Yeah, just the four of you? Yeah. Um, where are you from? And I, I said, uh, we're from Colac. Uh, yeah. Straight off the bat, and I lied. I told a little white lie, yeah. and I thought, oh, I can, I can probably make it seem like we're coming, from. we're coming yeah. from Colac. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, okay. Oh, and 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 uh, Jono, Jono, you're not the fence. You're not a fencer, are you? No, no, no. You probably don't know me. Uh, and I kind of got this sort of vague thing. And he goes, anyway, whatever. We'll book you in. No worries. Okay. And when we got there, I was so riddled with guilt. Yeah. Already. And I was sort of talking to Lou and her old man. Did you change your appearance at all? Like, I don't know. I actually did. Well, because you look like you're from. um, I was wearing uh, this. Nicholson Street. I was wearing. Well, this is the joke is that. The the clothes. If you told me to dress up like I was from Southwest Victoria, I'd probably still wear what I wear on Nicholson Street: stubby shirt, which a tradie probably would wear. That's true. Yeah, and uh, blundstones. You've always got blundstones on. Yeah, and, and apart from like slightly tight jeans that I'm slowly filling out into, the, yeah, that it's probably it'll fly okay. still. I just more meant like the long hair. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Rock I for- vibe. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, we rocked up and I was so smashed with guilt for even kind of letting them think that I'm two of us might not be from Melbourne and I said, "Look, I'll come. I've got to come clean." I when you called me, I I said that we're from Colac. We're actually from Melbourne. Oh no. But we've been staying in Colac. And they were like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, no, we thought we thought that might be the case. We thought that might be the case. Well, they because, talked about it. Because uh, locals haven't been going there. And only people that have been going to the place to book were from the regional towns okay. or from passes through on the way through from Melbourne. Yeah. And I said, well, look, we're not on we're not in from any of the postcodes that have been locked down. Yeah. And uh, it was like this feeling of like, you can't I, I felt like you can't treat me like everyone else. Like you can't just treat me like everyone's infected in yeah. Melbourne. I'm from East Brunswick. I'm not from Brunswick West. Yeah. Like, you know, we're fine over here. And how and did that go? I on? didn't say that. That was just my kind yeah, of. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It, well, it, it kind of just made me think a little bit about um, how people must feel when they're thrown into the same basket all the time. Yeah. Like in any kind of minority yeah, or yeah. any any group that's sort of um, uh, treated, it lumped into a category yeah, because of yeah. because of a postcode. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a good little lesson to have. Yeah, just the, like a small window into it. Yeah, and the meal was delicious. Yeah, oh, so e- everything, everything was fine. We had a great meal. They yeah they they fed us and and um, brought us pots of beer and it was yeah. great. Was it like an ongoing gag or? No, not so much. It no. was fine. Yeah, and I think they, they were staring at you, wanting you to leave. Uh no no there wasn't any of that. I think it was like um I think they were more just wanting to see whether we were a bunch of people coming from Melbourne. Yeah. on the way through somewhere. Okay, but. As it turned out, we'd been down that area for the last couple of weeks pre-spike. Yeah. And it was like, okay, that's fine. Like you've been hanging around a bunch of people we know. 
so we'll trust it. They were sufficiently we'll, reassured. Hopefully. It's a strange time. It's a very strange time. But, yeah, and I, I hope that um, I don't get anyone in trouble with that little um, story. No, I think you um, gave nothing away of their identities. That's good. <laughs> I actually did give nothing away. Like I could probably shout them out because the meal was great, but I'm not gonna, even going to do that. Um, you've been running still? Yeah. Running? Yep. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you run tonight? I This was my first day off in two and a half weeks. Uh, so, yeah, I did a 28K around the hills yesterday. Felt banged up. Um, staying out of my mum's um, uh, in Eltham. And, uh, yeah, my legs felt all banged up overnight. I was going to run into Collingwood this morning um, but just felt like I was on the cusp of injuring myself. So mum kindly gave me a lift. Ah. Uh. Yep. That's very nice. Yep. <laughs> um, you've, you don't like, uh, you, 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 you've said it yourself that you think talking about running is probably boring. Mm. Um, but I'm really interested in some aspects of, of running. I'll talk about running you for have... three or four hours if you want. Like, I actually love talking about it. I just get very self conscious about it because I think it's one of those things in life where you can think what you're doing is really interesting, but in fact, it's fucking boring and um, really self-involved as well. Like it's mm. not it's not something that unless you're raising tons of money for the community, which some people do, um, which I think is maybe sometimes like to offset the fact that they're feeling like they're spending 10 hours a week <laughs> away from their family doing something pointless. But um, That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's, that's, uh, that's a real um, broad psychoanalytical comment based on nothing on the fly. Yeah. But... Um, I certainly feel sometimes that it is just it you're doing it for yourself and it, it, it yeah it has other major benefits including like mental health stuff and whatever but it's it's for oneself mostly and um, and I just yeah sometimes when people ask me about it I just sort of like give a monosyllabic response and try and move on that said I've noticed that over the past few months due to circumstances, people are like really interested in running or like more people are interested, not everyone. Um, and, yeah, like I posted a couple of things on Instagram. Um, uh, one after my most recent marathon last year and then another at the start of the corona thing, just like, oh, if anyone like wants to chat about running and they've, like if they're completely new to it, just want like some basic advice, just hit me up. And, yeah, just like if, I don't know, maybe like, eight or ten people on, like, Instagram, like, messaged me just wanting to, like, have a chat on the phone. And I just, like, got, yeah, they called, you know, call up and or I call them and just I got totally carried away. Like, I ended up, like, you know, speaking to each person for, like, an hour and, like, giving them, like, real detailed advice. And mm. I think it's just because I enjoy talking about it. And if I can feel like I'm imparting something to benefit them, it makes it less of a, a selfish thing. Mm. And do you, do you beat yourself up that it is a selfish thing? You um, are you aware of it being self-indulgent? Well, or? I'm aware of the um, – I, when I started doing like marathons, I was very aware of the um, the metric of like achievement and I'd always like wanted to do stuff that was culturally impactful in at least my eyes and, you know, other people got things out of and like I've always like had like an existential dread kind of like real 18-year-old thing where you're just like – wanting to leave your mark on the world and all that crap. But like, and then you do something like running, which unless you're like elite is thoroughly pointless, really. Um, it's the end. It's the absolute opposite. 
it's 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 leaving no mark. None, none. Um, and probably then, removing marks. Yeah. If anything. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think like I got over that pretty quickly. Like I just got obsessed with it, and I still am obsessed with it. I, I mean, I am prone to getting kind of really, really into things, and almost getting the like um, blinkers on and just seeing nothing else. But like, um, it's been like such a gigantic um, lesson for me in so many different areas. Like I love kind of like getting other people excited about it. And you notice this sort of like um, ricocheting effect around your like friendship groups and whatever. I guess some people with their families even like other people like hearing um, about how much you love running and then they love it and then they get someone else into it and whatever. Um, But, yeah, I like um, have – have come to just like lean on it really heavily, especially at the moment, like as quite a, an anxious person, I think anyway, like um, running's a pretty steadying force at the moment in my life and probably a lot of other people's in that um, there's a purpose to each day. Like I, like although all the marathons and stuff are cancelled, I like, you know, I have a certain amount of kilometres I want to do each week and I know how I want to do them. I know which run I want to do each day and like, you know, how to sort of, it forces you to look after yourself and as someone who probably didn't for many years, like, at all, um, I, like, yeah, have learnt to love that and also just learnt a lot of lessons about, like, um, about, like, hard work. Like, I don't think I understood patience Mm. and, and, like, uh, someone who's, yeah, as I alluded to earlier, like, putting stuff out relentlessly, which is a generational young thing, whatever, like, something I'd always done. And then to have this thing where with marathon running, you literally have to string together years and years of good training to get any better, um, to get significantly better anyway. Like it was just mind-blowing to me. I was just like can't believe how patient you have to be with this shit. And like if I, I yeah, I like would increase by a couple of kilometres a week and get injured. I was like, okay, I can't do that to change my technique entirely because it was just like um, not sustainable. I'd have to like go to the gym to try and build up certain areas of my body because they were too weak and – like, um, yeah, just like this really incremental thing where I'm probably like four years into it now, three or four years into just a, like um, a, an interest in marathon running and only now I think I'm starting to like get it. Um, With, which you'll probably look back on and say still don't, like in a few exactly. years' time you'll come back and say I, I didn't even, I wasn't even halfway there. Yeah, I, I, hope, I hope that that's the case and I hope I like think that I really didn't get it. Um, do, you, do you think when you're in the younger 20s, that kind of stage you're talking about pre-understanding of hard work, I think some people, I'm probably similar to you in that I, um, I, I think it took actually doing any physical stuff for me to realise that hard work understand the importance of hard work understanding that discomfort being around discomfort sitting with discomfort i'm assuming that's kind of similar to running there's times where you're in a lot of discomfort but it's not bad and it's not going to end you it's just your relationship with that discomfort and and working through it so i i I, i'm in the dark here with a lot of it because i've never run more than 10k but uh, the times where my chest would be absolutely killing me if I was running when I was twenty, mm-hmm. I'd be like, "Oh, I'm not I'm a done. runner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm stopping. Yeah, that's it." Um, but I think the physical sides of things has kind of shown me a, a, how those mental tricks come up 
Mm-hmm. So, or, or when my brain tries to stop me from doing something, yep. is generally it's kind of like a protective mechanism. And but you can override it if you really want. Overridable, yeah. and it's generally not. Um, it's not a very helpful one in in the grand scheme of things. Do you think when you're in your younger twenties that um, is it an energy that carries you through all that sort of stuff where you, where you don't need to necessarily work that hard because you is it is it a lack of self doubt is is it just unbridled energy because you've got youth on your side. Mm. I'm talking generally with, yeah. with doing stuff. Yeah, yeah. I like the parallels. Um, I think like there's a that maniacal kind of energy and it's unsustainable and it fluctuates a lot. And uh, then you see that there's a different sort of an energy that is sustained and um, at times like uh, – Absent of enthusiasm, um, there's a that you have to maintain the energy to get the results, and it's like um, it's a yeah a less wavering kind of a, um, a an output, but and less self destructive. I assume the maniacal energy can be destructive to yourself, probably. Yeah, yeah. I assume. Yeah. Um, I I, I think um, yeah, and I think um, in terms of the energy that you're saying. Uh, you need to feed that lacks any enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, a big part of that, from it, it took me a long time to adjust to understanding that that's okay. Mm-hmm. I think I was very put off by that. Um, anything that requires something that is non-enthusiastic, it, it, to me, seemed pointless. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, uh, even detrimental to some spirit or. Uh, energy that I needed in my life. Yeah, yeah, you're ser- you're servicing that sort of like intuition, which isn't fully like formed in- anyway. But like, um, yeah, I think there's also a sense of like, okay, I'm like thirty, um, which is like yeah, probably around the age I started thinking about marathon running. What am I like? H- how much longer will my body function the way that I like? want it to, you know, and, and, um, what can this thing do? Like, like I just didn't want to like, um, yeah, I didn't want to die wondering. I was like, I want to, I'd always enjoyed running and run a couple of times a week forever, done aths in school and stuff. I was like, what am I capable of? And like, I just, yeah, I didn't want to not know. And then you see the manner in which your body can, um, adapt. And I don't just mean like, you know, you drop a bit of weight and you look better or something, but like, your capacity increases where like you think a 15K run is just insanely long as I did and then you do that and then you're like suddenly, oh, not suddenly, you know, in a month or so you're doing 20 and then, you know, you do 30 and then you're like, oh, maybe I can run a marathon and like but like these long runs are just smack. Like you, you, I remember like I'd go for like a 25K run um, during like, the first marathon preparation and I just would be in the shower for like 45 minutes afterwards just like hunched over, like zapped like and then just spend the rest of the day in bed, like just totally cooked. And um, now I like, yeah, I could probably do a slow 25K run like pretty much every day and it would be fine but it's like that um, that adaptation where just like your, I guess, mind and what you're setting yourself for but actually just like your body too just – completely changing and you know times that you thought were really fast to run are suddenly like now super easy it's just crazy like you just can't believe 
yeah, what a an awesome thing you have at your disposal, which you've not respected to the degree that you probably should have in the past. And it's not a an original, like a, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people have probably gone through that exact thing with like marathon running or something equivalent. Um, but that was my kind of um, route into it. And it also just saved me from like, um, yeah, just destru- more destructive behaviours as well. Like, yeah, just sort of drinking and, you know, um, late night sort of behaviours that are just not beneficial. Like, like every time you have a, a beer, like um, you can kind of, yeah, you know what it's doing to sort of impact your performance and um, not that taking it that seriously is necessarily um, healthy. Sometimes I probably go too far with it. But, um, yeah, it's overall just been an amazing thing and hugely beneficial for my riding. Like I am much less um, just impulsive in the way that I approach riding now and and probably even like it's probably made me not want to do the video thing as much as well because I liked the immediacy of video and... And now I'm just like, nah, you know, I think I'm probably better suited to writing and, um, you know, which is something I think I've always had in the back of my head. Video is just like something I really enjoyed but all roads led back to there and only through running have I like been able to understand what is required to write. Did you find anything, uh, there's a few parallels here with Japanese um, kind of outlook on on, – dedication to a craft or dedication to a job or a yep. role um, and I, the way you speak about um, adapting your brain to running or, or the, your relationship to running kind of evokes um, uh, a movie that was on tally a little while ago that's an absolute pile of crap, um, The Last Samurai okay. with um, Tom Cruise. Um, not seen The Last well, Samurai. He, he's, um, uh, he goes and trains as a samurai in Japan uh, with The Last of the Samurai. Yep. And uh, we kind of get a little window into the, the world of that, um, you know, um, in Japanese culture, at least, at least ancient Japanese culture, you sort of have a... a a task or a role or a sort of um, a script that you're going to recite for your life, and that's your that's that might be your you're you're a woodcarver or you're you're an archer, and you you hone it. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much about like um, quick wins or validation or um, these things that we love to make things for. Yeah, it's it's this is what I have to do. Yeah, there's the Japanese have like that correct the correct way of doing literally everything. Um, yeah, I think there are parallels there. And, like, I yeah, went to Japan a few years ago and I think that was probably, like, something that got into my psyche a bit and I read a bunch of books about their culture and they've got a crazy marathon in culture over there too. Like, and, and people who just, like, like, most professional marathoners run, like, two or three, like, threes on the high end, like, marathons per year. And there's, like, a couple of Japanese people that, like, run them every couple of weeks and like high level. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a crazy work ethic and, and like super admirable, but yeah, I think you're also maybe, um, uh, uh, there are those sort of parallels people make between like Murakami, he, he wrote that book about, um, the running book that people refer to that, what I think about when I think about running or something like that. Um, and he talks about, um, yeah, the parallels between like riding and running and um, how, yeah, beneficial running can be in terms of understanding the human capacity and just patience and 
Um, it sounds right up your alley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, I think like there are a lot of there are a lot of things to be extracted from that. Mm. I would love to hear your story about um, when you were running in Japan, and uh, a, a gentleman fell over. Uh, do was that a real situation? Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I yeah. I was in Japan alone and um, was going on a bunch of runs, running most days. It's just a great way to see a place and get yourself oriented. But, um, yeah, I was uh, running around in, in Tokyo and um, there was a, a running group in Yoyogi Park um, and they, yeah, I just saw them going at a pace that I sort of thought was semi-doable for me at that point and, um very orderly, like almost militaristic kind of line. Like they're all just like in step with each other, immaculately kitted out. And I was just wearing some trash. And um, I kind of just probably listening to trash at the same time. Oh, I would just, yeah, just Ramstein and <laughs> um, Swifto and stuff. Real mixed bag of, of turbo trash. But um, I, yeah, just jumped on the back and was doing laps of this park with them. Um, and then, yeah, the guy directly in front of me, um, just sort of tripped over a rock. Uh, it was a bit of a sort of um, a bit of a trail running type course. And, um, yeah, I, like, managed to grab him by the collar just as he was um, going down, hoisted him back up, and he sort of, like, was – I think he didn't maybe even know that I was behind him at that – like, he just had been so locked into what he was doing, he wasn't aware because um, he was running in a straight line. And he sort of looked around really frantic and embarrassed and confused and – almost like, yeah, just deer in the headlights sort of thing. And, um, yeah, he just hurriedly like with some quick like little steps got on the back of the, the train again and, um, yeah, went around for another lap and then we stopped and, um, yeah, I like, you know, said arigato and um, thanked them and they all just sort of like, you know, did the polite nod thing and um, I wandered off and um, then, yeah, like maybe – Five or ten minutes later, like I was just walking towards the station, I get a um, tap on the shoulder and it's the guy who I'd picked up off the ground um, and he, yeah, just like really like um, in re- real like humility that I'd never really sort of seen before um, was like, you know, uh, thank you so much for, um, for earlier um, you are very kind and like bowed super low, which I think is like the degree of the bow um, indicates the level of kind of um, thankfulness. And um, and yeah, I bowed back and how how low him. how low did you bow back? Uh, I think I just because I was like unsure of the protocol. I think I just did the same. Yeah, yeah. Which is probably good. not the um. I probably probably should have been. It's a real westernist thing to do. Yeah, just yeah. Match it. Yeah, just just absolutely. Um, cook the sentiment just like yeah I probably looked like I was about to stumble but um, he yeah he, he walked off and I was like just so touched by that experience and um, yeah I think you're asking if it's a real story because I've turned it into a fictional thing um, in another story um, yeah I just sort of linked all these like experiences I'd had in, in Japan together um, to form like a yeah just narrative about um, someone by themselves in in Tokyo kind of riding around on this bird. It's a bit um, uh, magical kind of realism-y thing. But, um, 
yeah, uh, that all everything that happened in that story was was true. They were just all linked together in yeah. untrue ways. I really like that uh, little snippet of that. I, I like that whole piece about Japan, but about Tokyo. But that particular moment, I think, of the of the fall and then the subsequent kind of him coming back to find you is kind of a yeah a it really so mem- nice. yeah. memorable um, kind of section. It was that. beautiful. Yeah, and I think like um, I'd heard a lot about the Japanese way and manners and all that stuff growing up. My parents lived in Japan um, before I was born um, for a few years and um, like our house growing up was just like all Japanese stuff and shoes off at the door and like, um, yeah, out in the Australian like kind of semi-bush but Japanese and like oh, we had wow. a Japanese garden. And oh, okay. Like, um, yeah, I just like had... A lot of um, yeah, it was it had it had it had come to occupy the space in my mind. It was almost just like this like imaginary place that's where everyone's just super polite and efficient and lovely, and it's kind of what it was. It was a, so there was a sort of familiarity when you went over there. Yeah, yeah. It's like as someone who like basically, um, it's probably partly just my own psyche, but like feels no sense of like identity really. Like I just haven't like. Um, yeah, nothing where I'm like, oh, I'm part of that or whatever. Um, I like, yeah, obviously didn't feel like I was Japanese because I'm not, but I was like some of what's happening here feels familiar and I've heard about a lot of this and I'd heard of the, a lot of the places that I would stumble across and, um, yeah, just the furniture all looked kind of familiar because it was stuff that I'd had, we'd had in the house when I was young and. Um, yeah, it was it was just the most like beautiful experience, but also like a city that and a people that like give you a lot, especially when you're traveling alone over there. Like, and it's quite well set up for that because you can stay in these pods and like little tubes and shit like that um, quite cheaply. Like, it just felt that um, you could have quite a in this sort of neon jungle a quite a like you know, Blade Runner-y, isolated experience or, as is the case, you have this experience where you step out the door and something you can just have awesome experiences kind of, um, yeah, just like all the time um, just if you put yourself out there a bit. And I guess that's, yeah, kind of what that story was about. I was just like I was feeling quite like, um, you know, nervous and in, in this pod and looking, staring out the window like, oh, should I go out there again? And then I'd go outside and just have an awesome time every time um, and meet these, yeah, have these like crazy experiences. So, yes, you have you been? I've never been. No, mm. I really want to go. And it was on the list. We we were like that was probably the next place we were going to go. Until, oh, yeah, yeah, until uh, all this. And and now we uh, don't have that opportunity to get out of our own pods where we're all sort of stuck. Yeah. Um, yep. So Can't even go to NSW now. Yeah. The band today, just bookmarking that. Good riddance. Who are listening in the future. Yeah. <laughs> that happened today. <laughs> yeah, now you've dated this yep. very well. Yeah. Um, we better wrap because it's knocking on an hour's door. Um, thanks for joining me. Thank you for the interview, John. Yeah. How's the um, how's my performance been? Yeah, it's been good. It's um, rare that I do an evening kind of um, chat, so it kind of has. A, I feel like it had a nice little evening vibe. Yeah. Um, and I think my I have a weird adjustment dial that I need to kind of. Um, work out the sweet spot when I'm speaking to someone that I speak to a lot 
yeah. um, in conversational sense. And I probably found it about 10 minutes in and then I reckon we were like I felt more comfortable. We were cruising. Yeah. Oh, I think probably the same for me though. Like I, um, as I was mm. yeah, mentioning at the start, I like the um, silent third party thing where you're, you're yeah. aware that it's being recorded is something I've not had to approach for mm. a while. So hopefully I navigated it okay in and the end. I, I don't know about you, but I feel like often when the interview starts, my peripheral vision is very, very wide like this and and, and I sort of slowly, slowly bring it in and, and it feels like we're sort of sitting in this little kind of um, bubble yeah, yeah. midway yeah. through in the sort of heat of it mm. and then you've got to sort of, when it finishes up, you've got to kind of Explode it out. Explode it out. the bubble. Yeah, and say something like, well, thank you for joining me and, and um, what's next on the cards for you? With- Is that a legitimate question? Uh, no, I don't even care. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's just the sort of thing that someone would something hypothetically like that. say yeah, that yeah. you're not saying. Well, um, what's on after this? Um, enjoy your night. Cool. Yeah, thanks again. Thanks, Jono, and yeah, great interviewing. Thank you. Great um, interviewing with all the stuff you've done with interviews and conversations in the past. This could go back and forth all night. Yeah. Uh, I'll put the music on it way before this. So this is the first page of a story called Tokyo Songbird that Jono and I were discussing in the interview. A black crow cuts across my fifth-story pod's porthole then sharply back through the static that drizzles down over a darkening Japanese sky. Peering through the fuzz, rollies like lively atoms bobble below and pre-teen LED giants in pantomime routine smile down from on high, but she, like me, is here to drift on the wind in the space between. I throw on my only coat and boots and totter down the damp exterior fire escape, landing with a westerner's lumbering thud in the sodden alley, one arm the self-conscious visor from the spittle, I squint out at Tokyo. For the first time in my little life, all of me is much too big and rather too boorish. Everything feels 100 times over, squished inside a vending machine into some immaculately packaged hole. Press a button and out Japan pops. Colours as if bursting forth from a neon forest of snap glow stick trees bleed down from every wall and pour into me like a well. The metallic sheen of her wings slices like a samurai's blade through a forest of swaying fluoro beams to find me, eyes flickering, nostrils flaring and intuition daring. Her heavy gaze meets mine and with her arch build, she gestures sternly at an iridescent baton gripped tightly between her talons. My legs now dangle two floors above the street, open coat flapping behind me like a wrestler's cape, eyes focused on nothing, the most lurid hues in every light box identifying each little L-shaped tavern, precisely in its place inside a Lego edifice of a thousand elfin pieces. The endless lefts and rights and overs and unders disorient me as if a child inside the world's largest laser tag level. Rolling sideways, rain sliding off her glossy plumage, like a shower curtain, her wings and belly pushing against Shibuya's grey walls. I hang on with a single-armed grimace as she swoops under the sea of bouncing umbrellas, 